0: Welcome to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. My name is Sarah Tranum, and I'm the host of this series that explores some of the most complex challenges we face and examines them through a design and systems thinking lens. The goal of the podcast is to better understand deep systemic issues and learn about the socially innovative approaches being used to address and resolve them, and that can help us design a more humane future for everyone. This is part two of a two-part episode that focuses on homelessness. In part one, we looked at the system's challenges of homelessness. In part two, we'll learn about the solutions that are working, as well as the barriers that remain to meaningfully redesigning these systems to help eradicate homelessness. So I'll pick up where I left off. The fact that homelessness still exists points to the deep failures of interconnected systems that are rooted in inequity. This became even more evident during the pandemic and the disproportionate impacts of the virus on people experiencing homelessness. They were five times more likely to die of COVID. Coronavirus outbreaks in shelters resulted in the need for social distancing measures, which meant reduced capacity. The fear of contracting COVID in shelters and the lack of available beds pushed more people to sleep rough in parks, under bridges, on sidewalks. Emergency measures were put in place. Around Ontario, hotels empty of tourists became temporary shelters. But even with these additional spaces, there were still many left literally out in the cold. Tents, sleeping bags, food, and other supplies were donated through outreach organizations, with few other options to offer people who were unhoused. Encampments showed up in parks and other public spaces. This created tension amongst concerned residents, city officials, and the advocates for those living on the streets. Keeping Six, along with other outreach organizations like the Hamilton Social Medicine Response Team and the Shelter Health Network, have provided health care, food, clothing, hygiene supplies, and supportive services to those living in the encampments in Hamilton. They've worked in coordination with the city of Hamilton's street response team but grew frustrated by the city's actions to raise encampments. Keeping Six was one of the organizations to file an injunction to suspend the city's dismantling of the encampments without having a clear plan for housing those who would be displaced. Marcy McIvan from Keeping Six talks about what she experienced working with people living in the encampments and why shelter beds are not a long-term solution.
1: It's just, it's hard. What is happening now with encampments and people living in them have been displaced. People are being moved and we can't stop that. We obviously agreed to this protocol and and therefore there's parameters to what we can do, but what we do... In regards to that is, it simply support the people where they are and try to just meet them. I go out almost every day and see people. I was out this morning at three different encampments talking to people. One group has to move in the next five days and they don't know where they're going. The city has this thing where like, you can't be here or you can be here this long and then you have to go. But eventually we're going to run out of parks if we keep moving people. There's options to go to shelter for men. The women women system, um, which is a whole other conversation, it could be like a million podcasts. There's major capacity issues within our women's shelter system. There's not there's not space. The since the pandemic, since COVID, they opened hotel shelter spaces, and there's still not enough space. There's still women wanting beds and not able to get them. There is the option like people are offered, especially single men are offered shelter space. The problem with that, and a lot of people think, oh, there's empty shelter beds. Why are people need to use them if you're offered a shelter space your answer needs to be yes unless you've lived in a shelter it's hard to understand what living in a shelter looks like and what it feels like if you're in a tent in an encampment you you have autonomy you for the most part decide who comes and goes you decide who you sleep beside you know where your stuff is you're allowed things outside of like one bag if you are a substance user you can use substances and, and you're not questioned, and there's no bed checks, and there's not people shining a flashlight at you three times a night. Living in a shelter, and shelters work for some people. I've personally lived in shelters. Sometimes that was a good experience. Other times it wasn't. People have died in shelters. There's If you show up to a shelter and you have drug paraphernalia, you're not allowed in the shelter. Um, you have mental health stuff. The shelter sometimes can't navigate that, right? And you get restricted. Um, If you're in a couple, like if you have a partner, there's the hotel, which you can go to. But if it's full, there's no shelter beds for you. If you have a pet, you have to leave your pet. There's people that don't want to return to shelter because when they were at the shelter, they got COVID. They contracted COVID while being in a city-run shelter. So to say that, oh, there's a shelter bed, you should take it isn't as easy as just taking a shelter bed. A shelter bed is in no way housing. There needs to be low barrier housing for folks that's affordable so yes shelters are good and they work for some people but until the shelter maybe change their harm reduction approaches and their ability to work with people that have disabilities and have like some acute issues then those people it may not work for and those are the people that are going to get bounced from park to park to park to park
0: COVID put a spotlight on the ways that people in precarious housing are not afforded basic human needs and dignity. The lack of public bathrooms and showers has been widely discussed during the pandemic. But this has been an ongoing issue for people experiencing homelessness for years. Accessing technology and navigating increasingly digital services is another issue raised over the last year. But this has disadvantaged people who are unhoused before COVID-19 upended the world. COVID has also worsened the opioid crisis, which in turn impacted those in precarious housing situations. Reduced services and social isolation, coupled with a more toxic drug supply, has resulted in a higher number of overdoses. Hamilton's opioid deaths were amongst the worst in Ontario at the end of 2020. The loss of life due to opioids has been overshadowed by daily updates about the coronavirus and has masked the severity of this ongoing and growing health crisis. There have been significant efforts by various stakeholders to try to address homelessness in Canada during the pandemic. The federal government enacted the Rapid Housing Initiative. As part of this, Hamilton received $10.8 million to create affordable housing over the next year. This funding will allow the city to build 30 modular units. It's a start, but falls far short of the need. The hope is that the level of collaboration, responsiveness, and commitment for support during the pandemic will continue as the worst of it is behind us and we return to a sense of normalcy. But unless the challenges are met with a systems-based approach and significant investment, levels of government, organizations, and agencies will continue to only manage the symptoms of homelessness, working with limited resources and achieving limited outcomes. Let's delve deeper into what systems-based solutions really mean and what they can look like. An obvious place to start is the link between various public systems and housing. These are systems like criminal justice, child protection, and hospitals. These are systems that people exit when their sentences end, when they age out, when they're discharged, and that can leave them vulnerable to experiencing homelessness if they don't have the needed supports to help them transition into housing. Stephen Gates from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness talks about the need to connect these systems as a means of preventing homelessness.
2: There are systems failures that produce homelessness in this country, public systems. So people don't get access to the help they need when they need it. Some of our public systems discharge people directly into homelessness, right? Or indirectly even. Like we know that the way child protection is set up in this country with cutoffs and you age out at 18 or 19, depending on the province or territory, means that about 20% of young people in care wind up homeless at some point. It's like 0.3 of the population of youth have had some involvement with child protection but amongst homeless youth it's 58 percent right we discharge people from prison into homelessness regularly even though we know that if you do that the recidivism of that population will go up through the roof and so we're producing criminal behavior through not helping with transitional supports likewise we discharge people from inpatient care uh whether it's around health or mental health into homelessness knowing that whatever condition they were in hospital for will worsen if they get homeless. So, you know, if you have someone with a severe mental illness and you discharge them from the hospital onto the streets, like that's irresponsible. But it's the way we structure these public systems. And we tend to focus on on the individual problems without understanding these other things, because if you ask somebody who's experiencing homelessness, what happened, how did you wind up homeless? They have their narrative, they have their story, which will point to the things that happened to them personally. You know, very rarely will somebody say, well, my problem with homelessness started when the government of Canada backed away from affordable housing in 1990. People aren't making those links to those structural problems that are actually the the big issue here.
0: All nine stakeholders interviewed discuss homelessness as a systems challenge and are working at various scales for systems-based solutions. From youth homelessness prevention to ending Indigenous homelessness to building affordable housing, there is a shared understanding that for homelessness to end, it will not be one program or even a set of interventions. It will be a seismic shift in how the multi-layered factors leading to homelessness are addressed and resolved. Amanda DeFalco of Built for Zero Canada discusses the efforts underway to help communities better coordinate their services and to build a more human-centered system for individuals accessing these services. The federal policies, uh, the national policies, the provincial policies, and the subsequent investments are
3: critical for communities at a local level to be able to respond and do the work. But it's how those resources are being utilized and accessed is really the key as to whether or not someone will be successfully housed and, and be able to remain successfully housed. And so what we do with through the Build for Zero movement really is looking through uh, the ability for communities to coordinate the way that they're responding to homelessness on a ground level, which we think is, is really critical. So, if you imagine, for example, that our healthcare system worked in complete silos, so you know your family doctor doesn't know that you went to the hospital, or that your specialist can't see the scans that that have been done, um, you know that's imperative for making a health diagnosis. The same is true right now in the homelessness system, where in the past agencies. Um, would operate as individual programs or units and wouldn't operate as a component of a system. And so we're basically turning that on its head and reorienting that to say that everybody is part of the mechanics of the ultimate system that is designed to end homelessness. And so we help communities understand that system and then make improvements within that system to help that leads to better outcomes for people experiencing homelessness ultimately. And so the Built for Zero communities focus on getting the community to unite around the goal of ending homelessness, having one centralized data collection system, standardizing their practices so that people get the same access to services, removing bottlenecks and bureaucratic red tape, And then coordinating with the housing providers to match people to the different housing types based on individual needs and preferences. And that's really, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do at a local level and how those agencies are operating together uh, and coordinating a response so that the person doesn't have to try to navigate. If I need access to social housing, for example, I have to go and fill out this application over here at this office. And it's completely separate and different and no one's talking to the shelter that I'm at, so that if I you know, need to update an application, for example, being able to communicate between those agencies on behalf of that person is so critical because otherwise they're just operating all separately. And I can't imagine being in a crisis and having to run around to 10 different programs, trying to find what I need and not knowing if when I present there, um, I'm gonna get it. We kind of deconstruct some of that complexity and help to reorient to be focused on, you know, with the person being at the center And the coordination of those responses happens behind the scenes so that it is one tailored, seamless response for that individual.
0: There are federal initiatives underway aiming to better connect agencies and service providers in the homelessness sector. Reaching Home, Canada's Homelessness Strategy, is a community-based program aimed at preventing and reducing homelessness across Canada. Central to this plan is a coordinated access system that prioritizes people most in need and matches them to appropriate housing and services through a streamlined process. Another part of the strategy is the Homeless Individuals and Families Information System, or HIFIS, a data collection collection, and case management system that allows multiple service providers in the same community to access real-time data and to increase coordination of services. Having access to data is critical, so is ensuring that this data reflects individual experiences and does not just treat people as numbers. Amanda talks about the importance of humanizing data.
3: We're so accustomed to removing names in situations where we've institutionalized people in society. And I think that's really intentional. Is when you remove a name, you dehumanize a person. It's very easy to lose their humanity in that process, but we have a name for a reason. It is what upholds our dignity in society and allows us to be treated as human beings and recognized in society as a human being. And and so reinserting that name in that process is really critical and important to also destigmatize the experience of homelessness. It's just the absence of a house, but we layer on all of these other complexities onto people who are having a really hard time trying to regain housing and stabilization in their lives. And I think that that's really unjust. So I really do believe that including names, knowing people by name and what their needs are is really powerful.
0: Despite federal directives and organizations supporting local communities to utilize shared data and integrate across the sector, working to connect services and systems is an emergent space for the homeless sector. There are still some big challenges to overcome. This is particularly the case when looking to connect broader public systems with homeless services like education, public health, and housing. One of the challenges is how funding works and is segmented along governmental jurisdiction. Homelessness is the purview of the federal government and municipalities, while health and education, for example, are the responsibilities of the provinces and territories. Jeff Nevin of Indwell discusses the challenges of this division of funding and oversight for systems that are so interconnected.
4: When it comes to homelessness, the federal government and the municipality have responsibility. And when it comes to health and when it comes to affordable housing, That's primarily the area of the province, and this is problematic. And what it means is that we have groups and institutions who are working against each other and somehow believing that when you discharge somebody from hospital to homelessness, it's no longer the province's responsibility, and it's a savings to the province to discharge someone from hospital to homelessness. Or if you've got a housing unit, let's make sure someone from hospital doesn't get that because as a municipal employee, my job is to empty the shelters and the homelessness. So I'm going to focus my attention and fight that that unit should only be filled with somebody from the street, not from hospital, because that's not my problem. That's the province's problem. So we have systems and we have every social service and health care service and institution are funded by these three streams. And what happens is there's a disconnect. So in every city across Ontario, you have someone, a municipal employee, who has a list of everyone who's seeking affordable housing. There will be a desk, often in the same office, of someone who has a list of everyone, a by-name priority list, and that is of homeless people. And they will have a list that's separate from the other one and they're not integrated and they're not working together. And they might be in the same office, but they're funded through different streams. And then just down the street at the hospital, you have a discharge planner with a list and a timeline of this person has received treatment for mental health, for addictions, and is ready to be discharged in three weeks. Where are they going? And these lists and these systems and institutions have somehow convinced each other that it's not the same person that they're dealing with. And they deal with it based on where their funding comes from rather than a person-centered approach of these are Canadian citizens where we need to work together. There's good news on this front. Uh, We have a restructuring of our health system in Ontario that has had a delay due to uh, COVID. But for the, the first time, Housing providers are being brought to the table when we're talking about health, and uh, health providers are engaging with homelessness. When we can break down these barriers between this artificial idea that this person is not our responsibility because I'm the province and I only deal with health, and when we can break down those barriers, then we can actually use the resources together for the benefit of the individuals that we're trying to serve.
0: Attached to funding is accountability and understanding who's responsible when stakeholders from across sectors are exploring innovative initiatives. These are real concerns, and without a foundation to work from or supports to help navigate these questions, accountability and liability will continue to undercut potential game-changing cross-sector solutions. At the heart of these challenges is the legacy of how the homelessness sector evolved. Charitable groups emerged when governments were not addressing society's core needs. These organizations relied on donations and the goodwill of other citizens to help fill in the gap for services that were desperately needed. As the social safety net provided by governments expanded, some groups were no longer needed, while others evolved into a broad range of nonprofit organizations with different missions and approaches to working in the community. And while charitable donations from individuals and businesses make up a portion of their operational budgets, most organizations rely on some form of government funding to support their work. This has created a convoluted patchwork of programs and funding models. In some cases, this means that organizations that effectively connect share info and best practices are actually competing for the same pots of money. It leaves organizations spending huge amounts of time and resources to continually fundraise instead of just focusing on serving those in need. For individuals accessing services, it means having to navigate the various organizations and different eligibility criteria and intake processes. Organizations vying for funding across multiple sources has meant adhering to different timelines, reporting requirements, and evaluation metrics. This was a common theme amongst those interviewed. The limited timeframes for programs are a major barrier to determining if an intervention works. So are evaluations related to volumes of people served, instead of focusing on metrics that show who was housed, how long they remained in housing, the improvements in their quality of life, and if they're thriving. Cheryl Green from the Hamilton Regional Indian Center talks about the frustrations of time-limited funding that does not reflect the needs of Indigenous peoples.
5: You know, when we look at a system level, it's important to recognize the unique needs of Indigenous people, include us in the various processes from day one and not just an afterthought. We want the autonomy to make our own decisions as we know what works best to support our people and allow us the opportunity to make those funding guidelines and to, you know, make timeframes reflective of the time and effort and support that are required for us to do the work that we do. You know, Indigenous people have endured, you know, many losses, trauma, grief, inequities, discrimination, and in the impacts of residential school, the 60s scoop, the government and genocide, the education system, Like it it can go on. But these injustices didn't happen overnight. They didn't happen in three months where like the government is saying here, here's funding for three months. It did not happen over a three-month time frame. It's been over many, many years. And it's going to take us many years to address the suffering our people have experienced and to be able to effectively heal and be able to move forward. But the reality is, is that it needs to start somewhere and recognizing that the parameters that go with funding allocations, you know, may not meet the needs of Indigenous people. Recognizing that the funding allocation amounts need to be reflective of the Indigenous community members. Is it reflective in the work that we need to do to be able to support our people?
0: One-year deadlines for getting people housed, three-month benchmarks for outcomes, programs attached to four-year election cycles are not attuned to the realities of those experiencing homelessness and the multi-layered systemic factors which were decades or generations in the making. I don't know about you, but if there was a hard deadline for me when I was navigating the job market during a recession or finding a home in a sea of unaffordable housing, I would not have met it. Life isn't linear and so easily timed, especially when the systems are stacked up against you. Then add on navigating it with a disability, a mental health crisis, an addiction, an abusive relationship, all without having a roof over your head. These are arbitrary and unreasonable deadlines and expectations for those who are in crisis and for the organizations that serve them. There are government initiatives being rolled out that offer more flexibility and expanded timeframes. The Canada-Ontario Housing Benefit, or COHB, is a recent funding program that provides a portable housing benefit to assist with rental costs. It can provide up to nine years of support, but only for prioritized groups. And there is a limited number of benefits available. So what is it going to take to shift away from the scarcity-driven model and move into a systems-based solution that can pull from deeper resources? One is going to be change management. Steve Gates from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness talks about the need to help organizations in the homelessness sector shift their focus
2: one of the things we've seen in canada over the last five years and we've been working on this with communities with government is there's been a shift and five years ago nobody wanted to talk about prevention but now people are and so there's kind of an opportunity here You have the government of Canada, current government with the Reaching Home Strategy. It's the first federal initiative that ever highlighted the role of prevention. Now, what I would argue they need to do is they need to front load some investment to help community organizations shift over to prevention. Because you can't say, we want you to do prevention, but you have no extra money, but eventually you'll be fine because you won't need the shelter and you can use that money, right? You have to allow people to do the new thing while they can wind down effectively the old way of doing things. There would be a lot of pushback because there's a lot of vested interest in doing things the same old way. You know, there's like capital investment, people own buildings. There's people who love their jobs or, or don't but are doing them uh, in particular ways. But it's like the shift to the green economy in a way, right? Like it will achieve a better end, but we have to ensure that people – who lose out in terms of their industry disappearing, have something to do that's ideally better.
0: It will also require a full-scale shift away from the belief that one program or intervention will solve homelessness to a shared understanding that systemic factors have to be addressed. So what does this look like? Well, let's go back to the three key ingredients needed for ending homelessness affordable housing, support services, and prevention. We need governments to heavily invest in affordable housing while also regulating the housing market. The private sector and the market left to its own devices will not meet the housing needs and solve this challenge. Central to this is government working collaboratively with for- and non-for-profit housing providers to provide funding mechanisms that are workable and to ensure that the demand for dignified affordable housing units are fully met. We need government funding of the essential support services, programs like Housing First, that will help individuals quickly access safe, affordable housing and to be able to remain there. Core to this is providing skills development, health supports, addiction treatment, counseling, and opportunities for social inclusion and connections to education and employment. We also need government funding to help prevent homelessness. This includes interventions like eviction prevention supports and ensuring that those exiting prison, youth protective care, and hospitals have clear pathways to appropriate housing. Essential is a focus on preventing youth homelessness by supporting efforts to recognize and assist youth at risk. This includes providing providing family-based supports, and when remaining with families not safe or possible, having a range of supportive housing choices that helps youth to thrive into adulthood, not just survive it. To do this will mean eliminating the patchwork of funding and various programs and initiatives. This will require addressing the wage gap between those on government benefits and the real cost of living, as well as the gap between low wage labor and living costs. This points to the need for mandating employers to pay a living wage and for reevaluating the role and function of government benefits. What's the point of paying people so little they can't afford to live and that requires them to access other services? Living in precarity can impact a person's physical and mental health, their ability to be productive, and their overall well-being. All things that put a huge drain on other public systems, let alone the overall quality of life. What about giving people what they need to live from the get-go? Some will ask, how do we pay for this? And many experts will answer, it's already there. The money is just divided into smaller budgets. It's being allocated to different parts of governments to strategies and programs with different objectives, all working on symptoms of the very same problem, poverty and inequity. The system's failures magnified by the pandemic and the realization that the billions of dollars spent is only working at the symptoms, not the root problems, have renewed calls for a universal basic income. Many see CERB, or the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, that was rolled out during the pandemic as a first step towards a basic income. It provided $2,000 a month to employed and self-employed Canadians who were directly affected by COVID-19. Erica Morton from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness discusses the conversation amongst those in the homelessness sector about a universal basic income.
5: We're having some conversations recently with some different folks. I think unanimously everyone wants to see the universal basic income. Well, what is, I guess, served now, but they would like to see the the, you know, the full on implementation of a universal basic income that almost seemed to be in a way sort of a fundamental response that was needed. So I think partially because, I mean, again, without that stable income, without that sufficient income, you can't get the housing you need, you can't, you know, address bills and food and And all those other things. So I think what's resonating in communities is, you know, having this taste of having sort of serve as a quasi uh, basic income, maybe pilot and, you know, the possibility to keep that going beyond COVID for sure.
0: There are several well-researched plans and demonstration projects around the world that point to different strategies and the effectiveness of providing all people with a basic income. One short-lived pilot in Ontario that was canceled when the current conservative government came into power showed overwhelmingly positive impacts on those participating. As part of the Ontario basic income pilot, the participants received up to $16,989 per year for a single person and $24,027 per year for a couple. For those who worked during the pilot, the basic income decreased by 50 cents for every dollar earned, and people with a disability received up to an additional $500 per month. It allowed those who would otherwise depend on disability or welfare benefits to fully cover their living expenses. It helped aspiring entrepreneurs and new graduates to pursue their career goals without the need to rely on low-wage labor to barely pay the bills. There are many naysayers that question the ability for government to afford such a sweeping social payment program. However, the economics of keeping people in homelessness provides a clear answer. It's not only financially feasible, it could make much more fiscal sense than the status quo. Stephen Gates from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness discusses recent research on the cost of keeping people unhoused.
2: Research done on the cost of keeping people in a state of homelessness, and it costs public systems fortune. Eric Latimer, who's a top economist at McGill University, looked at five Canadian cities that has really good data uh, who were part of this At Home Chisois Housing First project and calculated what it costs annually to keep a single person in a state of homelessness. And he estimated it costs 50 to 60,000. Toronto is $59,000 a year. That covers the cost of the emergency homeless services. But it also, we have to understand that when you keep people in a state of homelessness, their health declines, so they need more health services. And we also use law enforcement. People wind up being arrested and in jail. A prison cell is the most expensive form of housing in Canada. So it's really expensive. We think, oh, we can't do better. It's the best we can do. It's charitable. But it's a travesty that we're spending all this money. You could take that $60,000, rent a place for the person, and throw two social workers on their back, and they would do much better. And the cost of supporting them is better if you intervene early.
0: As Steve discussed, Eric Latimer and his research team calculated the cost of services for homeless people with mental illness in five Canadian cities. They calculated expenses related to hospital visits, court appearances, and other services used by the participants in the study. The team determined that the annual cost to Society of Homeless People with Mental Illness averaged about $59,000 in Canada's three largest cities. They also found that 10% of participants generated costs in excess of over $93,000 per year, reflecting a high use of many services. This is one data point within a sea of budgeted and societal costs of homelessness, adding up to billions of dollars spent. And yet people remain unhoused, with over 75,000 Canadians on any given night, on the streets, and in precarious housing. It begs the question, how can we not afford to invest in another way forward? Any form of a universal basic income in Canada will be an uphill battle, and even with it in place, it must be part of a full systems-based shift in how social services are delivered. It will not in and of itself solve homelessness. As outlined, investments in affordable housing and support services and in prevention measures will still be required and will all need to be working in coordination. Though led by the federal government, a top-down approach will not work. Flexibility and the ability for each community to adapt various programs to meet their unique needs will be essential. Amanda DeFalco of Built for Zero Canada reflects on the role of each community in helping to end homelessness. We support and look at community
3: needs, because I think that the way that we will end homelessness in this country is community by community. It's not going to happen by one government policy or practice. It's going to happen on the ground with the efforts in those local communities. So being able to make those investments based on real-time data and information, I think, is critical.
0: A nationwide, fully-resourced effort that also provides support for community-based implementation is needed. The group of stakeholders interviewed reiterated the need for flexibility and time to work at core issues. They explained that ending Indigenous homelessness requires Indigenous-designed and led solutions that are attuned to the needs and strengths of these communities. They also expressed the need for more people with lived and living experience of homelessness to have a voice, that their perspectives should be a bigger part of the design and implementation of strategies that impact them and that can help others. Within this community-led model is the need for a human-centered approach. There is no one-size-fits-all way to move people into stable housing. Individual needs and choices are critical and are the foundation for a rights-based approach. De Jagger talks about the need for care workers and other supports to work with individuals to find what will work for them.
6: We actually need to put our energies there and find creative solutions to make it work. And I still believe that through really those really innovative, out-of-the-box type of ways in which these programs support individuals to make that housing stability work, that we're going to continue to see these benefits in our community and within clients' lives. We are going to go into this work with the belief that it is possible to end homelessness, and we need to get out the nitty-gritty of working with actual individuals and families and understand what is it that they need to make this work and putting our resources, our energy, our creativity and our connections into solutions for people. So a lot of really practical problem solving on the go and so what a lot of these programs within Hamilton and I know across Canada as well they have been addressing those issues that come up in very creative ways ways that promote the relationship as well with the landlord with the tenant kind of facilitating and mediating situations I think it's also important to understand that the experience of homelessness itself is traumatic and there can be different impacts of trauma And I think from my own personal experience working with women that left domestic violence and intimate partner violence situations, there can be a lot of situations that really bring the fear back into a person. And sometimes that can translate into some different types of behaviors that maybe a superintendent or a landlord is not necessarily familiar with. So then how do we help the client set up the home in a way where the person feels safe and where there's either formal or informal supports that can really help a person uh, recover to some degree from the trauma that's been previously experienced, either through different situations or the trauma of homelessness itself. Some of the challenges, like the actual making it work situations, it's a series of smaller problem solving that we have to do with each individual to understand how are we going to make this work.
0: This requires those working on the ground to have the time and resources to work closely with people. As Marcy McEvan discusses, it's about treating each person as an individual and not giving up on them. She reflects on what helped her in her journey and creating a stable life in which she now thrives and talks about the people she wishes were making decisions about how to end homelessness.
1: I think what changed is throughout that whole process and throughout many years of precarious housing and loss of housing and in and out of jail and in and out of rehab and in and out of hospital and all this stuff is there was a couple people that just came by to say hi. They didn't judge me. They didn't get mad at me. They might not have liked my behavior or what it looked like. There was times where I slept was messy. There was times... I openly used substances. People don't always want to see that. There was times that I had stolen property and although these people didn't agree with how what I was doing they didn't condemn me for doing it and they didn't tell me I had a week to find somewhere else to be there was people that actually supported me where I was at and it changed my life eventually it didn't happen right away it didn't happen like in a time frame that people wanted it to I was recently actually talking to an outreach worker I worked with when I was 19 I'm 39 now so they were my outreach worker 20 years ago when I was in the midst of something I didn't even understand and I was talking to them on the phone and they're like I can't believe where you are now and I'm like well it wasn't for people like yourself not giving up on me and she brought up the word you didn't comply with what we wanted you to do but you created your own life and my life is pretty amazing today it was a long process it was years and years of struggle that brought me to a place where I can be of service so if you ask me what would have made it different is if there was more people like that if the people that were the decision makers were the same people that supported me I think that would be what would change it.
0: Ultimately, investing in affordable housing, support services and prevention, supporting a living wage, and a universal basic income come down to what kind of society we want to be. Some communities are making it clear. St. Thomas, a city of 39,000 people located in Ontario, has determined it will be a compassionate community. It's laying out a comprehensive strategy to address homelessness through the creation of housing and wraparound services. It's working with for-profit and non-for-profit partners with police and public health officials to carry out its mission to ensure its residents have access to safe, dignified housing and needed supports. Amanda DeFalco of Built for Zero Canada reflects on where we go from here.
3: We as Canadians have an important choice to make on this issue. We can view homelessness through the lens of charity and focus on the individual as the problem. Or we can see ending homelessness as an act of justice and demand that we improve this social safety net for everyone in our country. I'd say that the justice-based approach treats the causes, not the symptoms, and ultimately sees people experiencing homelessness for who they are. And those are people like you and me without housing.
0: A commitment to ensuring housing is a right and ending homelessness through designing systems-based solutions will not happen overnight. So what can we do in the meantime? I often struggle to know if giving money to people on the street is the right thing to do, knowing it is just addressing symptoms of a much deeper systemic issue. I asked those interviewed about what people can do collectively and individually to be part of a solution. Here's an overview of what they said.
6: you're compelled to give money to an individual on the street who's asking you for it that's great I give money to people all the time because I have it and I can and they need it and they're asking but then once you give somebody that money it's theirs to do with what they want (laughs) so these kinds of attempts like you know I'll get contacted from like student groups or whatever that are so well meaning and they want to like put in some kind of gift card scheme so that you don't have to give cash to people on the streets you can give them a gift card to ensure that your money isn't going to drugs and alcohol And that's just so belittling to a person. Do you know what I do with a lot of my money? I buy wine. (laughs) And it's somebody's right to do whatever they want with that money. And so I hate those kinds of things that infantilize people that are homeless. So please, at the individual level, give to shelters, give to food banks, because we're in a crisis and those things are needed right now. But also get involved and continue to push our policymakers for longer term systemic solutions.
2: When somebody's asking for money on the street, we should treat them with respect, look them in the eye. If you don't want to give money, say, sorry, I don't have any or sorry. Treat people with dignity. Think about why somebody wants money. Because we often think it's like they're wanting to go buy drinks or drugs. But people who are homeless want the ability to make decisions about what they spent on, just like you and me. When you're homeless and in a shelter, you don't get to choose what kind of food you eat or when you eat or with whom you eat. It's all there for you. It's typically not great food. People want money in their hands on a day-to-day basis so that they want to go and get something to eat just like I do, or a cup of coffee, just like I do, or a drink, just like I do, then we should respect that, that human beings are able to make decisions. You may not like their decisions, but they're adults. We can't infantilize people to the point where we think that they are so incompetent that they cannot handle change.
6: If you are a person who is fortunate enough to have an investment property, consider renting out at least one of your units, someone within the shelter system. Work that out with the staff at that location to understand, like, how can we make this work? You stock up a room. In the family's new place, so you know maybe that would be the kitchens. We'll get some dish sets. We'll get some pots and pans. So think practical solutions, practical things that people need to really establish themselves, that often they have a, an upfront cost in terms of obtaining all of
1: those things to make a home feel home. If we could get people, instead of crossing the street where they see someone panhandling, if we can just get them to say hello. People ask me all the time, they're like, I just don't know how to engage. And I'm like, you just say hi. Don't cross the street with your kids. Don't take pictures. Give humanity back. Like, like just give hope, right? Like, I don't know how
5: else to say it other than instead of being afraid, be a friend don't pass judgment. Things are not always as they appear to be. Like I said, no one chooses to be homeless or at risk of homelessness. There are other factors that need to be looked at and recognized. You know, we need to be kind and treat people with respect and dignity. We're all human and no one deserves to be treated less than because they do not have a physical structure of a roof over their head. You know, no one know the struggles that someone has gone through, you know, and they haven't walked in anyone else's moccasins to be able to know, to be able to talk about that. People are stereotyping of who is homeless, you know, and why they're in this situation, and they are probably a drug user and an an alcohol user and all of these things. Regardless of why someone is homeless, they need help. They need access to appropriate support.
4: When we think about what can we do today, sometimes we think that a rant on social Social media, where we point the finger at someone else, is somehow effective, and it can be. But I would suggest that it starts with our own personal values. What's important to me? What do I have? How do I use that for the benefit of others? Do I believe that the person who's sleeping on the grate on the street or under the tarp in my park, who may have an addiction, who may have active psychosis and hear voices and be speaking to them, do I actually believe that that person has the same value as I do? I think we have to start there. And if for some reason that we've decided that my value is as a human, is there based on my output, what I contribute, what I can purchase, what I can pay in taxes. It's a value piece. We've come as a society full circle where we realized that all children matter, not just children of particular ethnicities. We have to do the same for all people. It starts with values.
3: Um, the Canadian Alliance Against Homelessness has a Recovery for All campaign. You can learn more about how to help through that by checking out our website at caeh.ca. People can also explore how the organizations out there are working towards improving outcomes for people they serve. So, for example, you might want to ask how many people are getting access to housing or staying housed rather than just seeing the volume of people coming through the doors being a success. Um, you know, share what you learned through this podcast to help destigmatize the issue. So my personal challenge to those who are listening on this is to share, you know, what you learned through this podcast or with other podcasts on homelessness with at least five of your family members or friends. And then ultimately, my advice in terms of, you know, should you give change, should you donate to a shelter, a food bank, is just to lead your choices with compassion Um, whatever that might look like for you. So while the longer-term solutions are the permanent housing and supports, shelters still do play a critical role in helping people with temporary accommodations to help get people connected to housing, and we'll probably still need those temporary solutions in addition to focusing on the long-term solutions as we make progress.
0: Why does homelessness still exist? The short answer is that it's a system-based challenge that requires a multifaceted approach and deep investment from governments, and we're still yet to do that. The long answer, and one we must reckon with if we want to truly end homelessness, is that as a society, we have not fully embraced the belief that we must invest in helping everyone to thrive and that housing is truly a right. Neoliberalism helped to reinforce the false ideal of the self-made man and leaves the shadow of stigma around those who didn't rise to the occasion. It causes people to question who's truly deserving or not, who's too lazy or too crazy to help and spend money on with our hard-earned tax dollars. It is a hard legacy to overcome. And today's populist politics do not help as the cries for small governments and for cutting the gravy train endure, as thinly veiled racist, sexist, homophobic rhetoric fills airways and social media feeds, and is doing its best to try to dictate who's in power. This faction, even when it's not in the majority, is helping to shape policy, to further diminish the social safety net, and to weaken the social contract. This filters down to how organizations and programs in the homelessness sector are funded and evaluated. It's why those with the best intentions can only work on the symptoms and never get to solve this challenge at its roots. This ideology is clear in America, and Canada is in no way immune to the same agenda. COVID-19 can be a reset, a catalyst to invest and double down on the society we want to be. The inequity we saw amplified during the pandemic can push us into action, or we can be lulled back into a familiar sense of normalcy. And for many of us, this might be a comfort, but for others, it's a continued struggle to survive without basic rights like safe housing. Choosing to shift our individual and collective focus and efforts to support things like affordable housing, support services, prevention, living wages, and a basic universal income through the way we vote, through public funding, through opening our minds and hearts can be a move to end homelessness. It can be a commitment to the belief that all people have the right to live in dignity and safety and for the opportunity to be healthy and to thrive. This shift can be part of redesigning a new kind of economy to transitioning us to humane capitalism, a kinder, more equitable economic model. The ideas shared here and the number of people working to champion and implement systems-based solutions rooted in empathy and respect, give me hope that this is possible and that this is part of the journey to designing a humane future. Thank you to all the people interviewed for this two-part episode, for sharing your time, expertise, and for your efforts to bring an end to homelessness with compassion and grace. Your work is a light in a world that sometimes looks dimmed. Thank you to Leslie Corbet, who edited and assisted in the production of this episode. To learn more about those interviewed, follow the links included in this episode's description. Thank you for listening to the Designing a Humane Future podcast. Be sure to subscribe to listen to upcoming episodes in this series. Take care and be well.